Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning we're wrapping up. We've been walking through our vision and values as a church for the month uh, of, of September. This is our last one. Your session had met together from the very beginning of the year. We started meeting together and praying together and studying together and looking at demographics and kind of just sharing our heart and sharing our dream for what Sycamore could one day, someday be. And after doing that for six, seven months, we kind of started to distill some values and kind of um, put that into a vision. And so our vision for us as a church is to be a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other. And we do that based on four values. We live, we grow, we thrive, and we go. And before we get into all those, would you please join me once again as we go to God's Word and God in prayer. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your Word this morning from various parts of the, of the New Testament, we pray, Lord, you would give us wisdom. Give us truth, Lord, for our growth, that we might see who you would have us to be as we are on your mission. We pray you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So kind of the landing spot for our, our vision as a church is from Ephesians chapter 4. It's kind of the big picture of where we're going. Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 11 and 12, is there's this picture of Jesus is now the enthroned king. He has been installed as the king of kings, and so he gives gifts to his people. And so he, gives, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. And what do they do? They take these actions on behalf of his church. And so our four key values come from this passage here. At the very bottom there, if you'll see at verse 16, where it says that uh, the body builds itself up in love, that's fellowship. And the action there is congregation to congregation, where we grow together in love. That is, we live. Then up in verse 12 is where several of the values come from. First of all, we have building up the body of Christ. That's discipleship. The action is the congregation towards Jesus and the scriptures. The metaphor is the church as a gym where we work out like a muscle the salvation God has given us. We grow healthy together, so we grow. Last week, we looked at that phrase for the equipping of the saints. That's equipping. This is the session and the staff towards the congregation. And the metaphor is the church is like an outfitter, getting you prepared to go and do something amazing, giving you all the equipment and training that you need. This week kind of all comes together. And what is all of that for? It's for the work of ministry. This is what we're going to call being missional. The action is the congregation towards the community. And the metaphor is the church as an outpost out at the edge of conquered territory, moving civilization forward. So once we're equipped from last week, now we go. We head out on mission. The word for ministry there in verse uh, 13 or 12, excuse me, the word for ministry there is the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. And what this word means so often in the New Testament is it means to be a bringer, a bringer. So in Acts 6, we have these guys who are helping to bring food to people, so they're serving their deacons. That's where we get the office of deacons from. They're a bringer. In secular usage, outside of the Scriptures at this time, it was very close to what we would call a prophet. This was someone who had a connection to the gods, and they were a bringer of, of the gods' resources to a community. They were a bringer of God's truth. They had something from the gods for the people. And so that's, the, that's kind of the idea of ministry here is that we are those who have this connection to God, and we bring something to the community. 
If you were here for our James series, it's very close to the idea of being a poet of Jesus where we have this connection and we bring it to the world on God's behalf. So the enthroned King Jesus, what does he do? He gives gifts to his church and those gifts result in the church going out and doing ministry, bringing Jesus' love, bringing the gospel to people. So before we jump into our text for today, I've got to do a couple church world words, okay? So um, we got missions and we've got missional. What are those two words? What are those two differences? Well, missions is an activity that we engage in occasionally. Missional is an identity that you would organize yourself around. Missions is what you do. Missional is who you are. So with that in mind about being missional, this value of go, we're going to ask three questions. So what is missional? What hinders being missional? And how are we missional? And so for our first question, what is missional? We're going to look together at Acts chapter 4. It's printed for you on page 10 on your bulletin. And because we're going to do several passages, you don't have to stand up for this. But this morning, first thing, what is missional? Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And then we'll jump down to verse 13. This is God's Word. And as they, that's, this is uh, Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then jumping down to verse 13. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, oh, this is God's word. Okay, so it starts out with the temple police who come and they arrest Peter and John because they're, of what they're doing. And the text singles out this group called the Sadducees who were greatly annoyed. Okay, well, who are they? Well, so often, if you're, if you're familiar with the, the reading of the Gospels, you see this group called the Pharisees who are always dogging Jesus, and you don't often see the Sadducees mentioned that much. Well, the passage we read today in Mark is a Sadducee passage where they're going after Jesus. So you have these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, and our political labels don't always mesh. And so when I, I'm going to use political labels from our time, but that doesn't mean everything that someone believes meshes, okay? Just in general, for the most part, graciously let me say, okay, that if you, if you were more pol uh, politically conservative, more religiously conservative, you, you would be more in line with the Pharisee party at the time. If you were more politically progressive or religiously progressive, you would fit much more in with the Sadducees at the time. And what you see is that the closer you are to Jerusalem itself, the higher the concentration of Pharisees. And so as the book of Acts progresses away, you get more and more Sadducees because the Sadducees, they didn't have a problem collaborating with Rome. Okay, the Pharisees resisted Rome like a mask mandate, okay? You were never going to make it happen, okay? So the Sadducees were like, no, no, we can do this. Rome's good. Rome, Rome, Rome's going to be all right. All that resurrection stuff, all that supernatural stuff, we don't need all that. And so to these people who were 
not religiously or socially conservative. They didn't believe in this resurrection stuff at all. They were the cultural leaders of the day in many aspects. They were the enlightened ones. They were the ones, don't you love this phrase? They were the ones on the right side of history. And so the apostles, of course, were backwards, regressive disturbers of the peace. They were enemies of the truth. These cultural leaders then looked upon them like many Christians believe cultural leaders looked upon us today, greatly annoyed. And notice in the plot of the text, they weren't arrested for the healing. They were arrested for the message. The court is really upset at them because it was just two to three months prior that this group of leaders had convinced Rome to kill Jesus. And now these two clowns are out telling everybody that Jesus rose from the grave. You see, Christians don't get into trouble for serving, but for speaking truth. And just like the ancient religious court in this text, culture doesn't mind us helping people, but it feels very strongly about us talking of Jesus. And, and we, we feel that tension, don't we? Now here's where I'm supposed to pour on the challenge, right, and really pressure you to get out there and speak more truth. But perhaps a different path is to actually notice the text and actually believe in the inspiration we claim and see what actually happens in the text. In God's sovereign plan, it was the healing. It was the service to the community first that gave a basis for the speaking. One person was healed and 5,000 people believed. See, finding a way to connect and serve your neighbors very often leads to opportunities to speak. That's being missional. Recent research in church world caused a buzz. Um, this, I think this data is about three, four years old. That apparently 47% of churched and Christian millennials said that they don't think it's right to do evangelism. It's rude. It's offensive. And of course, people freaked out. And of course, they always got to pour it on the millennials, right? So they're like, what is wrong with these millennials? But if you actually look into the data, what they said was this. 47% of Christian millennials are against formulaic non-relationship evangelism. What is that? Well, my son works at the McDonald's right down here at Food Line, and he's telling me as I bring him home every, every time, he's like, Dad, somebody did it again. We, got, we had this whole stack of tracks that we keep at the drive-in window because every shift, someone comes through, they don't say hi, they don't ask our name, they just, here, here, take this. Every time. And, I'm, and I'm not, you know, my son isn't a, isn't a Christian, and so I was like trying to like, well, you know, I mean, please take that from the spirit they meant it. I promise you they think they're trying to do something good. He said, no, no, I'm not offended. He goes, I just, why can't they say hi? Why can't they like ask for my name? Why can't they, why can't they like engage us and talk to us and then hand us? Why is it just, just handing us something? See, that's what the millennials were saying. Like, don't do that. Like, actually, like, get their name, you know? Which is funny because there was earlier research a couple years before that that was asking questions to non-religious millennials and an overwhelming majority of non-religious millennials said that they agree with the following statement. If a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind him talking about it. Why am I telling you this? Because if we demonstrate that the gospel is valuable to us, people are willing to hear that's being missional. We see it in Acts 4. We see it in data from our own culture. If we demonstrate the gospel is valuable to us, people are willing to hear. Now, did you catch that last phrase from verse 13? I don't think it's in the bulletin. That's, that's my mistake. Sorry about that. Can we put verse 13 slide back up? Go back one. 
So thank you, by the way, slide volunteers. I know I put you on, on the spot sometimes. So notice that very last phrase. They, they had this incredible boldness. And that very last phrase, they recognized they had been with Jesus. Isn't that amazing thing to have someone say, He's incredibly bold, but we recognize that you have been with Jesus. I've told this story before, but I want you to get this. There there are things that the gospel does to us, resources that we tap into that sometimes we don't even know about that our neighbors pick up on. So when when, when we were in Boston, um, you know, my next door neighbor, great guy, his name's Joe, about the same age as me, and his only child was the young, was about the same age as our fourth child. So, you know, we have five kids. And so we were like this huge family for Boston. People were like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? And I was the only pastor that ever met. So it was great conversations. So anyway, one day I'm out in my driveway, probably shoveling snow. And um, my neighbor is like, hey, can I ask you a question? Like, sure. What's up, Joe? And he goes, like, how do you do it? How do you do life with five kids? He goes, I have one child and she runs our life. And it's so stressful, we can't keep her happy, and I don't hear yelling coming from your house. There's seven of you in your house, and how do you do it? Now, I mean, because I was in a very secular society, I had to respond this way. I said, well, Joe, what you just asked me requires a religious answer. Um, is that okay? And he's like, yeah, hit me. And so I basically explained, you know, the gospel and that it gives me resources. I don't, you know, and I, I don't worship my kids. I'm free from my kids, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all this stuff, it doesn't matter what I said. What matters is that he saw, you have some resources for doing life that I don't have. That's verse 13. They saw they had been with Jesus. That's how people who don't know Jesus, who are completely unchurched, that's how they say that statement. How are you doing life this way? Our presence in people's lives, just like John and Peter's presence here, caused people to question, well, how are you doing that? That's being missional when our public relationships cause others to think of Jesus. That's being missional. So what is missional? It's your relationships, especially your public relationships, cause people to think of Jesus. Okay, so what hinders being missional then? Well, in a word, fear. The blessings of Christianity are profound, aren't they, for those of us who know Jesus? I mean, we want them so badly for our family. We want them so badly for our kids. We want them so badly for our people that instead of operating out of a love of God and a love of neighbor, we often find ourselves operating out of fear, don't we? We're afraid that our people will miss out on Christianity. So what, what happens is we tend to retreat into circles of like-minded people. And it's rarely on purpose, but we suddenly find ourselves only interacting with Christians, right? Only listening to Christian podcasts, only re- listening to Christian music, only reading Christian books, only watching The Chosen on TV, you know. And, like, and our week is usually full of activities at the church around other Christians. And all of a sudden we wake up and we didn't, we didn't want this. All of a sudden we wake up and like... I don't interact with non-Christians, like ever, really significantly. And we didn't mean to get there, but we're there. And so out of fear of loss, we have kind of just ejected this whole missional mentality from our Christian life. I mean, y'all, are, y'all aren't nodding. I'm not the only one who did that, right? I mean, okay, okay. So, well, Jesus directly addresses this fear in his people. If you look at me at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus, very famous passage, what does Jesus say? He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the mental image that comes to your mind when, when you hear that verse? 
Okay? It may not be as robust, but I want to show you a painting from the 1600s that I think kind of captures this, this verse. This is from the, the Flemish painter Jan Peters. Um, we, have this, we have this painting for me. There it is. Flemish painter Jan Peters painted this. He, he was famous for painting uh, military battles. He liked to paint castles, obviously. This is a scene from a Corsican war. And I just thought it's a great mentality. Here's a fortress at the dead center where there's a lot of smoke and like a horde of people there. That's where the gate is. That's the weakest part of the fortress. Let's go ahead and leave this up because I want, I want to talk about it. So in Jesus' time, it didn't look quite like this because this is medieval. In Jesus' time, every city, every town had walls and the gates in those walls, the doors were closed at night for safety. And in times of deep trouble, like an enemy army coming to siege your town, you close the gates as well. So if you overlay Jesus' words on this painting, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Where do you see the church? See, in our fear, many of us see fortress church under assault by the forces of evil, immorality, sin, progressives, but the Christians are safe inside because the gates won't prevail. We're safe. Anyone catch what's wrong? Gates don't attack. Gates are attacked. In Jesus' image, it's not fortress church withstanding the assault. It's conquering church, overcoming fortress evil. We're the zombie horde on the outside, folks. Okay? That's us. And the gates of hell fall before the forces of evil, sin, death, whatever you want to call it, they fall before the power of the gospel. I had this picture backwards well into my late 20s. I was already out of seminary, already ordained, already working at a church, and I assumed Fortress Church. And it messed with my being missional. It did. I tended to view non-Christians as adversaries and threats uh, because Fortress Church is all about keeping the defenses strong, not making sure those inside are really pure and trained, right? And we got to keep the weak points secure so we don't go out ourselves. We, we, cre we create these special forces called missionaries and we fund them to go outside, right? We stay inside, right? I assumed all those things. And I, I'm, I'm probably not alone. Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm probably not alone in that assumption, right? See, but Jesus says right here that biblical Christianity is the forces of sin and death cowering in fear behind their walls, knowing that their gates are not going to prevail. That's missional. Confident in the power of Jesus, we go to places where Jesus is not known. Right here in Midlothian to set people free with the gospel. See, really believing that Jesus wins makes us unafraid for our children and families. It empowers us to be in real relationships with non-Christians, going outside of the church into their natural habitat, let's call it, instead of waiting for non-Christians to come into ours. That's being missional, and fear is what stops that. So our third question, we'll spend some more time here, is how are we missional? We're going to go to Acts 17 for some wisdom here. First thing I want to do is look at those first two verses, Acts uh, chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, says this. So Paul is in Athens. Obviously, it says this. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And we'll stop there for now. So Paul is in Athens, and Paul is angry. 
It says he's greatly provoked. Don't you love how translations do that? It's the Greek word apoplexia, which where we get the English word apoplectic, which if you don't know what apoplectic is, I had to look it up. Think like Gordon Ramsay, right? You start throwing things and yelling at people. Okay, if you don't know Gordon Ramsay, think Marty when tech loses, okay? You start throwing things, like you're yelling at people for no reason. You know, I mean, Chris never does that when Florida loses, you know. Fran when Florida State loses. Nobody ever does that. John, Alabama, does, does Alabama ever lose? When they do, he, you know, John doesn't do that, right? It's just Marty. You know. But you know what apoplectic is, right? You lose your stuff and like just go crazy. And Paul is, that's the word they use for the apostle Paul. It's a compassionate anger. He is so upset, the text says, because the city is full of idols. We could literally translate that. They are smothered by idols, They're swamped with idols. They are being killed by idols, and it drives Paul to anger. And what Paul does in his anger is so different from what Sean does in his anger at at unrighteousness and sin and unbelievers. In Paul's anger at the evil, immorality, and idolatry all around him, he goes on full-on attack of the gates of hell. His anger leads him to engage rather than withdraw. That's being missional. He goes to the synagogues and he reasons with the Jews. He shows them the gospel from the Old Testament that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. He then goes to the town square. They call it the marketplace. Don't think like a shopping mall. Think more like a town square where sometimes there were protests. Sometimes there were political rallies. Sometimes there were like, you know, a farmer's market. Sometimes there were voter registrations. It was a place where economic and, and political and civic activity all centered around. So Paul goes there and he starts proclaiming the gospel in this place. He intrigues the intelligentsia of his day, so they convene a symposium at the University of Athens for the smartest people around to come and to hear Paul describe this Christianity thing that they've never heard of. And we're going to look at part of his sermon, his talk before this group in Acts 17, verses 22 through 32. It says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is God's word. Okay, so like an entire series of sermons could be preached on this. I'm not. But I want to hit a few things. First of all, notice what's absent here. Paul doesn't quote scripture anywhere because they don't know it. 
and more so, they don't respect it. When speaking to a Jewish audience, and you can find these sermons of Paul all over the New Testament, it is riddled with Old Testament references proving from the Scriptures Jesus is the Christ. That's Paul's wheelhouse, man. That's what Paul does. But here, he's not calling people to believe in a Bible they already trust. They just don't fully believe. He's calling them to, like, introduce them to the, the God of the Bible. So he doesn't use the Bible because they don't respect it. So what does Paul use? That's our next thing. What, what does he do? Paul engages their culture. He uses their cultural narratives and beliefs. He engages and he demonstrates that he knows them. He speaks their language. He understands them and their culture. In other words, he does what any good missionary would do. He comes and he learns the community. He learns their stories. He learns their heart. And then he speaks the gospel to those things. He goes to them instead of demanding that they come to him. It's super intense. Let me show you just a couple of these intense things. Uh, first, I want to throw up an ancient poem in the slides here for you. The ancient poet Epimenides wrote a hymn of worship unto Zeus called the Cretan. And it goes like this. They fashioned a tomb for you, high and holy one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you were not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. So the people of Crete didn't believe that Zeus was eternal. And this hymn was sung at the worship services of Zeus to repudiate them and to elevate the eternal stature of Zeus. And Paul quotes it. Another ancient poem. A poem of adoration for Zeus by Erastus called The Phenomenon says this, and I just got to say up front, it feels really weird to be reading this from the pulpit in a church, okay? Okay, <laughs> trust me. Okay, let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals leave never spoken, unspoken. For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for you are all indeed his offspring. I feel like I need to wash my mouth out with soap. Okay, anyway, so, and Paul quotes it. Now, one quick thing here between current culture, when we quote something in ancient culture, when we quote something, we footnote it, right? This is not an original thought. Here's where I got it from. Don't accuse me of plagiarism. That's not the motivation for ancient quoting. The motivation for ancient quoting is I'm referring to this whole big thing. Let me quote the salient sentence so you know what I'm talking about, but I'm, I mean the whole thing. The New Testament, over and over again, when it quotes from the Old Testament, it means that. It doesn't mean that specific verse. It means go to that whole story. Go to that whole psalm. So what, when Paul is doing this, Paul is quoting the most salient line and saying, go back to that whole hymn and read what you people wrote. That's about the gospel. See, Paul not only understood their culture, but respected their religious impulses enough to memorize their poetry and quote it in his sermon. And now what can only be called Athenian pop culture, there's no other way to describe it, is quoted in sacred scripture. See, Paul does this to connect with them, to lower the barriers and to open their ears and hearts. That's being missional. There's a third thing here that a lot of people forget at this point, and this is critical. Paul doesn't quote scripture. He quotes their stuff. And then here's the step that often is missed. Paul critiques their stuff. Paul doesn't just blanket say, and this reminds me rather of our Lord Jesus. That's not what he does. He, he critiques what they say. He doesn't merely understand and connect. He points out where they are wrong. 
And he has demonstrated that he gets them. And so he has credibility now to commend and critique. See, when people feel understood, when someone feels heard, it lowers their barriers and they will then listen to you. You have permission to speak truth to them. That's being missional. I mean, this is just two parts of Paul's sermon. I said, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but I can tell you right now, he alludes to Homer's Odyssey. He quotes several Stoic philosophers. He critiques their religious beliefs about creation, the afterlife, the nature of the soul, the, 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 uh, the, the essence of humanity. He does all of that in these 10 verses I just quoted. He is like deeply connecting and critiquing their culture. He deeply engages their world. He gets their fundamental motivations. Why? And I want you to remember these three words. So he can connect so he can commend and so he can critique because that's being missional. Now here's where we have to be careful because unlike Paul, I know what I'm prone to do and I bet I'm not alone is that I tend to critique a caricature of non-Christians without really critiquing or finding anything to commend because I haven't really made a connection. And when you do that, that has no credibility. Okay, let me give you an example. What am I talking about? So you're at the bus stop with your kids. I love going to the bus stop. It's great because when you go to the bus stop, um, everyone's just wearing what they're wearing. And we're like, we're, we're all safe here. No one's judging. It's early. And especially in our neighborhood, our bus is like always late. Sometimes like, is there actually a bus coming? And so we're always, we're always talking when, we, when the few times I go to the bus stop. And so let's say you're at the bus stop and all your neighbors are talking about the newest show on Netflix that's streaming. And they're like just interacting like crazy. They're just going nuts over this show. And you're like, no idea. <laughs> right? You have, let's just say for the sake of you have three options. I want to talk about three options. Option number one, this fortress church model. You grab your child, you plug their ears, and you run away screaming, danger, pop culture. Okay, I'm being facetious, barely, and, and you know it. Okay, Okay. The second is the easy evangelical model. This one is you search for that show from the website of a self-appointed discernment ministry led by uncredentialed people. Usually they have the name family in it, so you can figure it out. Um, and they give you a five-sentence critique of a three years' worth of a show, and then they give you 16 paragraphs of what's wrong with it. So you take that, and yeah, and you go armed at the bus stop, ready to just tear apart a show you haven't seen. Okay? Yeah, y'all aren't laughing now. All right, um, second. So third model. Third model is Paul's model. Paul was a Pharisee. We expect option one or two plus violence from a Pharisee, right? But here in Acts 17, his model is watch the show if you can. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Paul absolutely did not go into a worship service and sing these hymns to Zeus to learn them. Don't, I'm not saying that. Some things you can't go to. I get that. Some things you can't watch. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, oh, go everything. If you can, you stretch your comfort zone a little bit and you watch the show. You actually engage in the culture of your neighbors. And you'll see things. You'll see things of beauty that make you think of God. You'll see things that are so contradictory. Like, how is, how is that meaningful to somebody? Does that really motivate you? You'll th see things that are sinful and break your heart. But you've engaged in their world. And so now you can do what? You can connect you can commend, and you can critique. I don't want to give specific recommendations on certain shows, but I would encourage you to take seriously Acts 17 and the idea that we believe that God has inspired his word and that it's authoritative over our life. 
because Paul in Acts 17 is able to quote, apparently from memory, worship songs to Zeus. And he doesn't hesitate to make a connection with those Zeus worshipers so he can help make them Jesus worshipers. Whenever a show, whenever a book, whenever something creative, a movie, whenever it goes viral and ever, when vast swaths of humanity are resonating with it, there's always an opportunity to engage. So you too can jump in and connect, commend, and critique. That's being missional. And ultimately, it's the highest expression of love. Real love for someone is this, to relate to them in a way that they find meaningful instead of demanding that they relate to you how you find meaningful. In other words, instead of standing and demanding they come into your world, you go into theirs. That's being missional. See, a missional church goes because it loves. It engages with the community where it is because this is our assigned territory. It's like God put us here. And because of our calling, we do that because deep down we know that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus did not stand at the doorway of heaven and say, get here, come on, figure it out. Good stuff in here, come. No, Jesus went. He left the glories of heaven and engaged in our world when we could not engage with him. He walked among us for 33 years, connecting, commending, and critiquing. And then in the ultimate act of love and accommodation, he died for us, setting us free from sin. And by his life of obedience given to us, he qualifies us when we could not qualify ourselves. He made us able to come into his family and be reunited to God. That's being missional. And ultimately, it is God in Jesus who is missional towards us. And so as those who are united to him, we are missional towards each other. Oh, because Sycamore is a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other, where we live, grow, thrive, and go. Well, let's pray together. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, deep down, so many of us, and I know myself included, I just repent. It's so much easier for me to commission and fund someone else to go and for me to stay comfortable. I've done it for years. Lord, would you forgive me of that? Would you help me to see that you're the going God and that I am one of your sons should go to? Lord, for others like me here, would you please be in repentance? Father, it's an amazing thing to be overwhelmed at the thought that, that, that you came. You didn't demand us come. You came to us when we could not because you loved us, because you're a missional God. Father, we pray you would make us a missional people. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to have misunderstandings and difficulties, but Lord, would you make us a missional people because deep down we love our neighbors and we love you. And our hearts are broken that you guys haven't gotten together yet. Use us, Father, here and now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.